This is a recording of Withstanding Satan's Siege Through Christ's Iron Rod, The Vision of the Tree of Life in Context of Ancient Siege Warfare by Jared Markham, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Jared Markham. Abstract. Nothing was more terrifying in the ancient world than a siege. Besiegers disregarded normal conventions of war and either utterly slaughtered or enslaved a city's residents. Nephi used siege warfare imagery, including fire arrows, blinding, and being led away into captivity, to teach his brothers the importance of holding fast to Christ's iron rod. See 1 Nephi 15.24 By analyzing this scripture and the vision of the tree of life in context of ancient siege warfare, we learn how Satan besieges God's people, cuts off their access to the tree of life, draws them away through scorn, blinds them, and yokes them with the yoke of iron. Christ, in contrast, extends his iron rod through Satan's siege, inviting us to hold fast to his word, accept him as our covenant family head, and join him in his work by speaking his word. Those who act on Christ's invitation will find safety and joy in Christ's kingdom. Shortly after Nephi received his vision in 1 Nephi 11-14, through 14, he taught a vital principle to his brothers, that the word of God provides spiritual protection from Satan's temptation and power. Quote, Whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish, neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness. Close quote. Since this principle is absent from the King James Version of the Old Testament, one might wonder where Nephi developed this idea. The Joseph Smith translation of Genesis may indicate that Nephi had access to a similar teaching on the brass plates. However, even if Nephi had read Moses 4.4 or something similar, Nephi's insights still constitute a significant expansion on the information there. The timing and context in which Nephi states the principle, directly after experiencing his magnificent vision, strongly indicates that angelic instruction, rather than past scripture study, is the likely source of Nephi's understanding. A close comparative analysis of Nephi's vision with 1 Nephi 15.24 shows that the angel selectively chose visionary manifestations that helped Nephi clearly understand a. Satan's efforts to besiege Zion, its inhabitants, and all who seek refuge there, and b. The only way to withstand Satan's siege is to give heed to God's true word. The purpose of this paper is to illuminate connections between 1 Nephi 15.24, Nephi's vision, and the cultural context in which Nephi received that vision, in order to better understand how he hoped that his brothers and all of his readers might endure Satan's incessant efforts to draw people out and lead them away captive from Christ's kingdom. 1 Nephi 15.24 is given amidst a question and answer session between Nephi and his older brothers. Directly after experiencing his vision of the tree of life, Nephi saw his brothers arguing over the meaning of their father's dream. Unlike Nephi, they had not, quote, looked unto the Lord as they ought, close quote. And because Lehi had not explained the symbols of his visionary experience, Nephi's brothers were left in the dark as to their meaning. After taking some time to recover from his own vision, Nephi directly answered their questions. During this conversation, they asked their younger brother, quote, What meaneth the rod of iron which our father saw? Close quote. Nephi answered that, quote, It was the word of God, and whoso would hearken unto the word of God, and would hold fast unto it. 
they would never perish, neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. Close quote. In this conversation, Nephi used fiery darts, blindness, and being led away captive to illustrate the nature of Satan's attacks. All these images can be references to siege warfare. Why would Nephi use such imagery in communicating with his brothers? Nephi's family would have been familiar with sieges. Although the absolute dating of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem is still open to minor adjustments, Lehi's family may have endured Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem, even if they departed before the siege occurred. The sieges of past conquerors, namely the Egyptians and the Assyrians, would have been part of their family history, particularly since Lehi's near ancestors were likely refugees from Manasseh. Sieges were unmatched in their brutality in the ancient world. A successful siege typically ended with the slaughter and or enslavement of a city's entire populace. Homer expressed King Priam's fear of the eventual pillage of Troy in these words, quote, after I have seen my son slain and my daughters hauled away as captives, my bridal chambers pillaged, little children dashed to the earth amid the rage of battle, and my son's wives dragged away by the cruel hand of the Achaeans. In the end, fierce hounds will tear me in pieces at my own gates after someone has beaten the life out of my body with sword or spear. In siege warfare, conventional battle standards of honor and prowess were completely disregarded, whereas in the field of battle, victors took their enemies prisoner and often freed them after ransom. Sieges were usually culminated by conquerors hunting their enemies through the streets, killing without restraint, and enslaving those they spared. Nothing would have inspired a city's residents to fear like an impending siege. Perhaps Nephi desired to inspire the same sort of urgent trepidation in his brothers, Nephi believed his father's words concerning Jerusalem's siege and destruction, and he was grateful that the Lord had seen fit to spare their family such a fate. However, he also knew that Laman and Lemuel did not believe their father. In addition, Nephi had just heard Lehi state that Laman and Lemuel, quote, partook not of the fruit, close quote. A fruit that Nephi now understood represented the atonement of Jesus Christ. Nephi knew what his brother's potential rejection of the Messiah meant for them, Thus, Nephi used language that would clearly communicate his brother's dire circumstances, and nothing would have communicated immediate danger like siege imagery. Such language aptly fits his efforts to, quote, exhort his brothers with all the energies of his soul, close quote. In addition, Nephi's use of the symbolism may reflect his emotional reaction to much of his vision. Nephi said that he, quote, considered his afflictions were great above all, close quote because he had just witnessed the wholesale, quote, destruction of his people, close quote. Since sieges also resulted in the utter destruction of a people, this would have been a logical connection for Nephi to draw. A final reason why Nephi might use siege symbolism is simply because his vision resembled an ancient siege. As we analyze the elements of the vision in context of siege warfare, we see that Satan and his forces, number one, besiege Christ's earthly kingdom, Number two, cut off the path to Christ's kingdom with temptations. Number three, draw away Christ's followers through scorn. Number four, spiritually blind Christ's followers. And number five, captivate those who fall away. In 1 Nephi 15.24, Nephi first highlights two tools that Satan uses to, quote, overpower God's children unto blindness, close quote, namely temptations and fiery darts. 
During his vision, the angel explains to Nephi that the temptations of Satan are like, quote, mists of darkness, which blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men, and leadeth them away into broad roads, that they perish and are lost, close quote. The mists of darkness fit well with similar imagery coming from texts both before and after Nephi's time. However, Nephi's use of fiery darts as imagery for Satan's efforts seems to be a new idea. As has been argued by some scholars, fiery darts, perhaps mistranslated as arrows, are mentioned in Psalm 7 as a weapon in the hands of the Lord as he fights defensively for the faithful. Some have wondered why Nephi reversed this imagery, using the same object, which had previously been used to teach about Yahweh's protection, now as a symbol of Satan's offensive attacks. Nephi's inspired reasoning can be better understood by studying how fire arrows were used in ancient siege warfare. In the ancient Near East, fire arrows were used in siege warfare on both the defensive and offensive sides. As a defensive weapon, they were effective against siege engines. At least 100 years before Lehi, Assyrian siege engines were described as wrapped in leather to protect them against flame arrows and other burning projectiles. This defensive use of fire arrows may help illuminate the imagery in Psalm 7, where the psalmist portrayed the Lord as a defender against their enemies' rage and persecution. On the other side of the battle, besiegers used fire arrows as an offensive weapon to terrify, burn out, and overcome their hunkered victims. For example, during the siege of Athens, the Persians shot arrows wrapped with burning hemp fibers in the barricades surrounding the Athenian Acropolis, successfully destroying them. Thus, for the besiegers, fire arrows were particularly useful in rendering their victims' defenses ineffectual, making it possible for an overpowering assault. This offensive application of fire arrows is likely Nephi's intent in 1 Nephi 15.24. Of particular interest is that the metaphorical fire arrows of scoff and scorn are fired from the great and spacious building. When juxtaposed against the great and spacious building, the tree of life stands like God's city with a terrible gulf that divideth Christ's followers from their persecutors. This gulf is like the moats that surrounded many ancient cities. However, the gulf in Nephi's vision has one stark difference from the man-made moats of Nephi's day. The gulf of Nephi's vision is unassailable because it represents the justice of the eternal God. This great and terrible gulf creates the only truly safe place from Satan's control, near the tree of life. Thus, Satan's siege of the tree of life may be akin to the doomed siege of Zemnarihah and the Gadianton robbers in 3 Nephi 3-4. Just as Zemnarihah's men were powerless due to the scantiness of the provisions among the robbers, Satan and his followers are powerless against God's justice. Perhaps not coincidentally, after defeating the Gadianton robbers, Laconius's people hung Zemnarihah on a tree and then cut down the tree. According to John Welch, the people of Laconius may have been following an ancient Israelite practice of cutting down the tree upon which malefactors were hung. Maimonides explained that this was done so that the people can't say, quote, This is the tree upon which so-and-so was hanged, close quote, thus removing the reminder of the malefactor and his crime. The language of the prayer in 3 Nephi 4.29 suggests that the people of Laconius, in addition to following Israelite capital punishment practice, may have cut down the tree as a symbolic speech act. After they fell the tree, they prayed that the Lord would, quote, Preserve this people in righteousness and in holiness of heart. 
that they may cause to be fell to the earth all those who seek to slay them because of power and secret combinations, even as this man hath been fell to the earth. Close quote. Laconius and his people knew that if they stayed faithful to God, that the Lord would bring to pass the fall of all secret combinations that sought to destroy them. Secret combinations are a primary manifestation of the great and spacious building. The angel taught Nephi that the great and spacious building included, quote, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people that fight against, close quote, God and his people, and that eventually these assailants shall fall and, quote, the fall thereof would be exceedingly great, close quote. Thus, not only does God's justice provide protection for God's people within the environs of the tree, the Lord in his own time will cause that the, quote, great pit which hath been digged for the destruction of men shall be filled by those who digged it unto their utter destruction, close quote. This impassable gulf between the great and spacious building and the tree of life does not leave Satan completely powerless, however. Even though Satan's forces cannot infiltrate God's city, they use a great and spacious building to rain down their fiery arrows of mockery, scoff, and scorn. In Lehi's vision, the constant barrage of scoff and scorn negatively affects many who have partaken of God's goodness. They become ashamed, leave the safety of Christ's kingdom, and, quote, fall away into forbidden paths, close quote. Lehi describes the building as being, quote, in the air, high above the earth, close quote, and, quote, filled with people, close quote, who mock and point fingers, quote, towards those who were partaking of the fruit, close quote. Typically depicted as a large castle-like structure in artistic depictions, Lehi's description of the great and spacious building also matches that of ancient siege towers. These towers were powerful tools in overcoming even highly fortified cities that had strong defenses. They towered over most structures in their day, and they were often built to match or exceed the height of the city's fortification, which was frequently higher than 30 feet. These siege towers were filled with soldiers, just as Lehi described the great and spacious building being filled with people. The siege engine, a mobile variety of the siege tower, rolled on wheels that were often hidden underneath the structure. From the defender's raised position on the city walls, such a concealment may have made the siege tower look as if it were floating. Attackers would build or roll the siege tower within firing distance of the city wall, where archers could eliminate rampart defenses. Such structures were used in the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem that Lehi's family fled to avoid. One example of these siege towers bears particular similarity to Nephi's description. In the 8th century BC, the Cushite king Pia attacked Lower Egypt. To conquer the city of Ashmunin, he erected a, quote, wooden siege tower from which the Cushite archers could fire down into the city, close quote. Nephi likely knew something of Pia's conquest, particularly since Nephi had exposure to Egyptian culture and language. Other corroborating reasons for Nephi's use of fire arrows can be found in textual analysis. In Hebrew, the word zikoth can be translated as firebrand or fire arrows, as it is in Proverbs 26.18. Alternatively, in most other places within the Old Testament, zikoth is translated as fetters or chains. This duality of meaning may have been a prime opportunity for a wordplay by Nephi. The ultimate purpose of Satan's fiery arrows is to bring us into his burning and bonding chains. 
Given the Book of Mormon's repeated use of the imagery of chains and discussions about Satan, recognizing such a wordplay may offer another feasible line of interpretation. It is also worth noting that Satan is described as an adversary in 1 Nephi 15.24, which is different than the devil and Satan titles used in the text of Nephi's vision. In the King James Bible, several words are translated as adversary. Satan is the most common and refers to someone who accuses or withstands. In Exodus 23.22, suor is the Hebrew word translated as adversary and has more specific connotations, namely, to be an adversary who confines, binds, or besieges. Thus, in 1 Nephi 15.24, tsar, the noun form of tsar, may be a better word than satan in fiery darts of the adversary because it is a natural companion to the siege weapon imagery of fiery dart. In all successful sieges, simply shooting weapons into a city was not enough. The assailants also needed to cut off access both into and out of the city. And in Nephi's vision, Satan does so by enveloping the lone entry point to the tree of life with his mists of darkness. As mentioned earlier, the angel explained that the mists of darkness are a representation of Satan's temptations. Then the angel showed Nephi a deeply personal example of these temptations among Nephi's descendants, who give in to pride, are overpowered, and destroyed. In addition, Nephi saw the great and abominable church strip the Jewish record of many parts, quote, which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord, end quote. This stripping caused the book to lose some of its essential power, and it became a less reliable guide for would-be followers seeking the living Christ, represented by the tree. As a result, the Gentiles are blinded, and their hearts grow hard. Without an effectual iron rod, quote, an exceedingly great many do stumble, close quote, and, quote, Satan hath great power over them, end quote. In addition to cutting off access to the tree of life, the mists of darkness are effective in blinding its victims and may be seen as smoke that stings and blinds the eyes of people looking for a place of refuge. Lehi mentions that those who were blinded by the mists of darkness, quote, wandered off and were lost, end quote. Likewise, those that partook of the fruit but were ashamed due to Satan's fiery darts of mockery, quote, fell away into forbidden paths and were lost, end quote. These strange roads are apparently filled with blind wanderers who are unable to discern their location or direction. Both the biblical and extra-biblical record show that blinding slaves was a common practice in the ancient Near East. The Philistines blinded Samson after his capture. Nahash, the Ammonite, besieged Jabash-Gilead and offered to put out only one eye of each inhabitant on a condition of their surrender. The Assyrians were particularly famous for blinding their siege victims, along with other countless inhumane punishments. As a warning to others that might be tempted to resist their conquest, Assyrian kings often took pleasure in personally blinding prisoners. King Shalmaneser I claimed to have put out the eyes of over 14,000 prisoners. Nephi's own sovereign, Zedekiah, succumbed to a fate that bears interesting similarity to what Nephi describes in 1 Nephi 15.24. Zedekiah's forces were overpowered by a superior Babylonian army. The king was then blinded, bound in brass chains, and led away captive to Babylon. 
In Nephi's vision, the angel states that the great and abominable church desires to, quote, blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men, end quote. Thus, Satan's forces expend great effort in taking away, quote, from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord, end quote. The word of God, then, is always at the center of Satan's crosshairs in his efforts to cut off access to the tree and blind those he wishes to capture, if he, through his great and abominable network, can in some way, quote, pervert the right ways of the Lord, end quote, then spiritual blindness among Christ's followers is inevitable. However, simply overpowering and blinding Christ's followers is not Satan's ultimate objective. Even after obscuring the entrance to the tree of life with sundry temptations, overpowering God's people with his fiery darts of scorn and mockery, and spiritually blinding those who fall away. Satan's siege of the tree of life is not complete until the residents of the tree of life are led away to destruction and into the pit of hell. See 1 Nephi 14.3 Satan's true desire is to take Christ's followers captive. The angel teaches Nephi about the strength of Satan's captivity by showing Nephi saints of God who are enslaved by a yoke of iron. The imagery of an iron yoke had particularly impactful meaning in Nephi's day and was directly related to siege warfare. In Old Testament times, a yoke was made of two pieces, the ol, which was the part that encompassed the neck, and the motah, which was the stave or rod of the yoke. While yokes for beasts of burden were fashioned of wood, iron yokes were tools of conquest and slavery. Around the time of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem, Jeremiah dramatically donned a wooden ol and motah to demonstrate Israel's fate under Nebuchadnezzar. In protest, the false prophet Hananiah removed the motah from Jeremiah and broke it, professing in the presence of the priests and the people that God had broken Nebuchadnezzar's hold. Jeremiah responded, quote, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the motah of wood, but thou shalt make for them a motah of iron. I have put a oil of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. End quote. The use of iron in the yoke imagery communicated a sort of long-term permanence to the coming conquest and bondage. Israel would not easily break away from Babylon. The dating of Jeremiah 27-28 to to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah makes it likely that Nephi would have been familiar with Jeremiah's dramatic use of prophetic simile curses and other symbolic speech acts in general, and his use of the iron yoke imagery in particular. This idea of the potential permanence of Satan's grasp is later and repeatedly taught in the Book of Mormon through the imagery of chains and cords. Lehi warns Laman and Lemuel to shake off, quote, the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. End quote. Nephi later writes of Satan's quote, everlasting chains from whence there is no deliverance. End quote. Alma repeatedly warns that Satan's desire to quote, encircle you about with his chains that he might chain you down to everlasting destruction according to the power of his captivity. End quote. Using cords in connection with this metaphor, Nephi teaches that Satan, quote, leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever, end quote. Whether by use of chain, rope, or yoke, the Book of Mormon clearly teaches that sin can have long-term negative effects 
and that over time, those who become bound find themselves under Satan's control. This is a fitting emphasis in a book written for the present day, a time when many, quote, call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, end quote. If sin is recognized, repentance is often perceived as a quick and easy fix. The angel's use of the iron motah, the rod of the oak, in describing Satan's way of leading God's children to destruction stands in stark contrast with God's method, which is interestingly also represented by an iron rod. In many artistic representations of Nephi's and Lehi's visions, Christ's rod of iron is portrayed as a railing alongside the path leading to the tree. This portrayal is logical and useful, given that the rod appears to be horizontal in nature, it runs along the path, and people must continually hold to the rod to successfully navigate the mists of darkness. However, Nephi may not have interpreted the rod as a hand railing per se, since the use of architectural railings were rare in the ancient world. Rods were more frequently carried, and while rods could simply be used as walking staffs, they were often used by rulers as scepters. Hebrew Shevet a symbol of authority. Hugh Nibley went so far as to say that Aaron's rod may have been passed down from one generation to another, quote, loaned by God to his earthly representative from time to time as a badge of authority and an instrument of miracles, proving to the world that its holder was God's messenger, end quote. Ancient Near Eastern depictions of kings and royal officials often show them holding or wielding their rod of power. Thus, the holder of the rod is seen as the giver of God's word. Nephi would likely have seen kings in Jerusalem holding such symbols and implements of their power as agents of God and may have also been familiar with the Messiah's use of an iron rod in Scripture. In Psalm 2.9, the Messiah wields his unbreakable iron rod to shepherd Israel to safety and salvation. While Satan seeks to cut off the entrance of Christ's domain by obscuring the path with his mists of darkness... Christ divides that darkness by extending his scepter through it to those who will grab it tightly. Viewing the rod as a scepter may explain why Nephi so quickly comprehended the meaning of the rod without the angel's assistance. Once the angel had shown him that the tree of life represented Jesus Christ's condescension and atonement, Nephi immediately concluded that the iron rod or scepter, which extends from that tree, represents Christ's message. Indeed, this scepter symbolism gives the iron rod a personification. Simply thinking of the word of God as words on scriptural pages has the potential of placing them in the abstract and distant past. However, if one sees the living Christ and his prophetic messengers as extending Christ's scepter, one feels invited and in need of not only holding fast to what has been revealed in past scriptural writ, but also to follow the messages coming from God's living prophets. Laman and Lemuel appeared to understand the importance of keeping the past, quote, statues and judgments of the Lord and all his commandments according to the law of Moses, end quote. Yet they failed to prioritize the words of the living prophets, including Jeremiah and their own father. Thus, they never grabbed Christ's iron rod and, quote, knew not the dealings of that God who had created them, end quote. After Nephi is shown how Satan obscured the path to the tree of life and blinded his victims through the great and abominable church's efforts to remove many plain and precious parts of the Bible, the angel says that the Lord, quote, will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel, 
which shall be plain and precious, saith the Lamb. End quote. Thus, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon can be interpreted as Christ's paramount work in cutting through Satan's attempts to obscure the path to the tree of life and blind its travelers. Nephi later speaks at length about the centrality of the Book of Mormon in the Lord's marvelous Latter-day work. Many Gentiles will, quote, believe the words which are written, and they shall carry them forth, end quote, to the Jews, who will be, quote, convinced of the true Messiah, end quote, and Lehi's descendants, who, quote, shall be restored unto the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which was had among their fathers, end quote. Moreover, there are two other valuable insights found by interpreting the iron rod as Christ's scepter. First, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for scepter, shevet, is sometimes figuratively translated as tribe. Members of a tribe were under the leadership and authority of their tribal head, the bearer of the scepter. Thus, holding fast to Christ's scepter has a familial connotation. This connotation is emphasized by Nephi later in his writings when he invites all to, quote, take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Then are ye in this straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life, end quote. Nephi understood that those on the path holding to the iron rod were in a familial covenant relationship with Christ. They had come far, quote, by the word of Christ with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon his merits, end quote. However, their work was not done. Being part of Christ's family means progression. Everyone holding to Christ's scepter must continue to press forward through Satan's deceptions by feasting upon the words of Christ. The second insight is found in the invitation to hold fast to the iron rod. As mentioned, Hugh Nibley theorized that the holder of Aaron's scepter was God's messenger on earth. By inviting each of us to hold his scepter, Christ is also obligating us to speak his word with his authority. Thus, holding fast not only implies studying, believing, and following, it also means that each of us are to speak the word of God. As Moses said, quote, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. End quote. In summary, Nephi's vision about the meaning of the tree of life effectively represents both Christ's and Satan's tactics. As they worship at the tree of life, Satan lays a ferocious siege against Christ's people who have partaken of the Savior's grace. The army in the great and spacious building that are, quote, among all the nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God, end quote, brutally shower down their fiery darts of persecution and oppression, causing many to fall away. Satan cuts off the entrance of the tree by obscuring the path through various temptations, feeding pride, and altering scriptural messages and meanings, thus effectively blinding the path's travelers. Finally, he binds the saints of God with an iron yoke and blinds their eyes, enslaving them to his will. However, Christ does not abandon his people. Through the darkness, he extends his rod and invites everyone to hold fast to that word, accept his covenant rule, and spread his message. As his covenant saints scatter across the earth, Though they are few, the Lord arms them, quote, with righteousness and with power of God in great glory, end quote. By juxtaposing the iron rods of Christ and Satan, we clearly see the character and desire of these two eternal adversaries. On one hand, Satan seeks to destroy agency by making people captive to his will. He wishes to weigh people down with his iron rod of sin, despair, and shame. 
On the other hand, Christ invites all to him by continually extending his word. All a person needs to do is hold fast and consistently press forward on the covenant path. On that path, all are under his shepherding rule. They are guided to the tree of life where they find joy. And while Satan will continue to rain down his fiery darts of scoff and scorn, if Christ's followers heed them not, Satan cannot overpower them. One of the primary ways in which Christ extends his word is through the Book of Mormon. In a time where Satan's siege of the tree of life is resulting in so many casualties, holding fast to Christ's word, particularly the Book of Mormon, is more important than ever. Unlike Satan, Christ's word is offered freely without compulsion. Christ honors our agency to choose between eternal life and everlasting captivity. We have to choose to hold to the rod and press forward toward Christ's promises or let go and withdraw, thus becoming subject to Satan's attacks and eventual long-lasting control. This has been a recording of Withstanding Satan's Siege Through Christ's Iron Rod, The Vision of the Tree of Life in Context of Ancient Siege Warfare by Jared Markham. Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 58, 2023. Read by Jared Markham. This audio recording is copyrighted under the Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited, and it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.